0: The future this week.
1: Sydney Business Insights.
0: Do we introduce ourselves?
1: I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Once a week, we're going to get together and talk about the business news of the week.
0: There's a whole lot I can talk about.
1: Okay, let's do this. Today, we we'll look at why Bill Gates and others think that robots that steal your job should pay taxes.
0: How the world has changed over the last hundred years.
1: And why batteries aren't that boring. I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights.
0: I'm Kai Riemer. I'm a professor here at the business school. I'm also the leader of the Digital Disruption Research Group.
1: And we've decided that every week we were going to get together and discuss the most interesting, the most challenging, the most disappointing news of the week.
0: The most ridiculous, maybe. And uh, we're calling this The Future This Week. So, Sandra, what happened in The Future This Week?
1: So, Bill Gates and a few others think that robots that steal our job should pay taxes. And given that artificial intelligence and robotics are about to disrupt so many industries and displace hundreds of thousands of workers, Bill Gates um, and quite a few European lawmakers um, think that these robots should now pay income tax.
0: Yeah, he says if a robot comes in to do the same thing, you'd think that we tax the robot at a similar level, right? So like for like, if someone loses their job and the robot comes in, they should pay tax instead. I guess that's a great idea from the point of view of governments who want to have a continuous income tax stream, but it raises so many questions, right, Sandra?
1: Yes. For me, the first question would be around the assumptions that he is making that these robots will indeed displace this many workers, and this is an assumption that these robots will destroy jobs rather than make people change jobs. So in in the same article, the same interview, he makes the argument that a lot of these people who are displaced could now be working in healthcare or childcare or aged care or nursing or any of these jobs where you need a high human touch. Yeah.
0: Well, so the assumption that we actually have fewer jobs once the robots come in, so that can be challenged. Uh, what I find even more staggering is that he seems to assume that, you know, someone leaves leaves their desk and next day a robot ro- rolls in and sits in their place, right? So I find that hard to believe. Most of what we're talking about is work that will be done by algorithms or by machines, right? So it would be very hard to pinpoint that there's a one-to-one relationship because isn't the whole idea that an algorithm would be able to do uh, the work of you know, many people and, you know, have we not learned from um, the past that technology rarely ever just mechanizes a task that existed before, but allows us to do a whole slew of new things, right? So how will we ever be able to to say, you know, who's going to pay tax there, right? So you've, it, it, it's not like we're displacing five people and we get five robots off the shelf who are sitting in their place, right? So this will be much more messy than that. So I can't really see this as a practical idea. I think there's some, um, some real po- problem there that he points to, but it, it seems to me um, awfully, uh, what's the word? a polite way of saying this, <coughs> a little bit um, flawed. Yes, <laughs> very good.
1: Flawed. I, I think it's also the assumption that this is the first time this this has ever happened. I mean, industrial revolution, we had the same thing. It wasn't what we put perceive these days as robots, but it was machines. Software then came along and replaced a lot of jobs. Um, and again, we are not Taxing, maybe we should tax Microsoft Office for doing a lot of calculations that we used to do by <laughs> that people used to do by hand.
0: Yes, yeah, uh, not really <laughs> practical, right? Also, what we're doing quite the opposite, right? So we've for a long time we made it tax deductible to buy machinery to displace workers, right? So we're not actually, and maybe he's pointing to this that there's a problem there with the system. Um, it's a little bit curious that it comes up now um, that it might hit a particular you know, part of the working force. Um, But I have a much more um, uh, practical question to ask, right? Why do we pay taxes? I think we pay taxes because we need to pay for shared infrastructure, like roads and swimming pools and libraries, right? So my question is, Will robots use those infrastructure? And if not, why, why should they pay taxes? Why should, you know, the robot would probably say, hey, I'm not going to the swimming pool. Why should I pay for your damn swimming pool, right?
1: Uh, I think just, just in case this airs later on and, you know, our robot overlords are listening, we, they are perfectly entitled to use our swimming pool should they want to.
0: So you're, you're referring to the point that once they develop consciousness, we might not want to tax them because they might not like this.
1: I just want to be on the safe side in case that happens. But I think there's also this assumption of, you know, we want to put robots in so that we get increased productivity or increased efficiency. But then we want to tax that efficiency, making it less efficient to get the robots in or to get automation in in the first place. So I think that
0: depends on who you ask, right? I think this discussion is a little bit of a distraction. I think it's good to point to the social problems and the social fallout that this um, supposed next industrial revolution might uh, create. But I think we have, um, you know, we're missing the point if we're tr- starting to to tax robots as if they were people. I think there's a tendency to anthropomorphize uh, machines as robots and, and to treat them as as human-like. But I think it's a little bit flawed, as you said, to um, assume that there's a a like-for-like replacement of workers with robots and that we could ever figure out how to practically tax them.
1: I think even um, engaging with Gates' premise, let's say we don't anthropomorphize them, but then we do try to tax the fact that they have been introduced. Who are we getting to pay this tax if it's not the robot? Themselves? Is it the owner of the robot? Is it the operator of the robot? Um, when and how do we tax them? At what point do we tax them forever or for the, their lifespan? Um, so. Time horizon, speed of replacement, there are so many problems with this, (coughs) regardless
0: of how you... I agree. And it also misses the fact that, you know, income tax is not the only tax, right? So there's other ways of recovering this uh, from the, you know, producers of machines, from, you know, new jobs in software development, but also from um, potentially, uh, um, you know, corporate tax that might come from... Um, revenues that are generated by the kind of works that we do uh, with algorithms. I think the whole idea that machines will replace humans is is missing the point. Anyway, I think we need to um, talk about how uh, machines, algorithms can be useful in helping us, uh, you know, do new things in the world, rather than looking backward and say, okay, this is what the world is like. Now the robots are coming. Um, what are they going to take away from us? Right. I think it's it's not the forward-looking. Uh, conversation that we should be having about this. Maybe we should give companies tax breaks for
1: putting robots in rather than tax them for having I'm them.
0: not sure you'll be popular with this. <laughs> But uh, I'm sure there'll be, there'll be more news in the coming weeks about uh, robots and algorithms. And I think this is not the last time this will pop up. But it was just a good opportunity to have a chat about this because the proposal is um, so stark. And it's got picked up in the news a, a fair bit, um, m- maybe precisely because it's a, a bit of an outrageous claim. And maybe that was the idea in the first place, to have this conversation.
1: Yes, unfortunately, I think the conversation that it sparked was very... Um, much on the side of of let's entertain
0: this idea and see. It is quite staggering how many people uh, picked up on the ideas and started, you know, ways of how to tax robots. But hey, you know, it's a conversation to be had and, you know, uh, we're having it right now. Anyway, I think this is not the only thing that happened in the future this week. Um, There's been an article um, by Singularity Hub. It's probably not the most widely read um, magazine, but they did... What we all often do—they look back, right? They look back into the past and said, "Oh, you know, uh, looking back back a hundred years, how has the world changed, right?" And I think this is an important topic because if we want to talk about the future, there's nothing better to learn about, uh, you know, predicting the future than looking back to the past. So it's quite interesting to to look at what they what they compared. So they looked at, you know, what would have. What would a burger have cost back then? What were, were literac- literacy rates? What was travel times, right? It took so long to go from A to B, to go from uh, London to Australia. It took three and a half months. Uh, we can do this in 24 hours now. You know, it's slightly more comfortable than back then, but it's certainly much faster. Um, I think it's, it's quite interesting in and by itself, the things that they focused on. Right I don't think it was the top priority in nineteen seventeen how long it takes to go from London to Australia, right so that tells you something like looking back right the average price of a car. I don't think that was top of mind most people in nineteen seventeen what a car would cost because it was beyond the reach of most people and it would have wouldn't have occurred to you as an everyday spending item, so I think that tells you a little bit about what um looking back at the past, how this this standpoint from today makes you look at the past in a certain way and it also tells you a little bit about what it means to look forward because if we put ourselves back in 1917 would anyone have um, believed if someone told a story from 2017 what the world would be like
1: i think it's an i think it's an excellent new story to to start out with because this is basically the future um, not this week, but this century. Looking back, we think were some of the most important things. And and as you mentioned, some of the items that are here, um, the average price of a car in 1917, I'm not even sure most people knew they could buy a car at that point. Looking at things in hindsight and thinking, well, how could we ever think this would be an issue? And foresight, we have, I think, very little of that. And probably what springs to mind, for me is, and it's one of my favorite examples that that, uh, that I talk about when we make predictions about the future, is the great horse manure crisis of 1894. So back in 1894, London and, and New York, and to some extent Sydney as well, maybe a few years later, around the beginning of the century, struggle. When you
0: say horse manure, what we really mean is horse shit, right?
1: Yes, this is a story about shit. <laughs> Um, the streets of London and of New York were literally needed in shit. There were thousands and thousands of horses. Pretty much every economic activity and social activity relied on horses for transport. Each one of these horses was, as we say, creating between you know ten and fifteen kilograms of. This shit
0: every yes, day? Yes, um, <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> every day. So so this this actually became uh, uh, at a crisis level. They couldn't clean it up fast enough. They couldn't travel around it. Horses were dying in the streets and were left to rot. Okay, it. so
0: if we turn this into a great student project, right, and we set the brilliant young minds towards solving the big horse manure crisis that faces us in 1879, was it? 1894. 1894. What would the likely solutions be and what would we think the future looks like in 20 years, you know, with population growth and even more horses on the streets, right? So what would the solutions be like?
1: So this is what actually the Great minds of that day did as well. And the solution was to build houses that had a lot of stairs and the entrance was almost at the first floor level so that you could get out of your carriage and go up the stairs. That's and what they
0: look like, don't they, in yes, New York?
1: Yes, they do. Most of the, oh. the houses from the beginning of the century, the end of the last century and the beginning of the uh, 20th century in New York, have the stairs and the entrance high up so that you would not have to walk through, through the... Um,
0: so architecture was literally influenced by, by
1: shit. shit. Yes, um, sewage was influenced by shit. The way that we developed sidewalks and the way we put the lighting in the street was yeah. was influenced by shit.
0: And then how did we solve this crisis?
1: Well, we never did solve this crisis. In 1886, Carl Benz patented his first automobile and he began production of the first series exactly in 1894 at the peak of the Great Horse Manure. Yes, yeah.
0: and people didn't know it back then, but bad news for horses. People didn't know shit. And that's the point, right? So in predicting the future, those disruptions that really changed the world in hindsight quite Significantly, they're very hard to predict, or you should say impossible. Right? So this is why when I'm called by a journalist and say, "Can you, you know, envision what the future of business would be like in a hundred years, or even in ten years?" My point always is, let's go back a hundred years, or let's go back ten years, right, before the invention of the iPhone or iPad or any of those devices, and let's have a chat about what the people back then would have imagined the world to be like in ten years, right? So these things are utterly unpredictable, right? But it is good fun to talk about them.
1: And I think it's also important to think about this at every single level. We tend to only observe this with things like cars versus horses, but they're just as valuable at sort of a grand scale. Because if people are asked to name the country that is the richest nation in the world and has the highest standard Mm -hmm. of living, the biggest military force, the most advanced educational system, the language that's spread around the world, the country that is the center of global finance or the center of innovation and its currency is the standard in the world, everyone today would say, well, it's probably still the U.S., but the answer to that question can just as well be um, it's Great Britain, if you're looking at the beginning of the century. And at that point, the British and Empire was from the largest now, in the world.
0: We might come to a very different answer there. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I have one more topic for us, batteries. Right? There was an article just the other day. It mentioned like every third sentence that really batteries are not a very sexy topic, but kind of an important one. Um, and the thing with batteries is that we haven't really made progress, not progress that keeps up with progress in the development of information technology, for example, where, you know, if we double the speed of the processing power every year, every other year, uh, batteries certainly haven't kept up with that pace. So the performance of battery hasn't kept up. But batteries are, they're important, right? But they're not front of mind because they generally don't really allow us to do all of these great new things. They're not the shiny things. They don't, you know, they're not like smartphones, which allow us to connect in new ways and all of these things. They make things possible, but kind of in the background.
1: Yes. And as Wired Magazine says, they kind of suck when you talk about it.
0: <laughs> no pun intended, of <laughs> no course. Pun
1: intended. So the conversation really was around the types of batteries that we have now.
0: Yeah. And I think they're, they're making advances Um, Not just in advancing the battery technology that we know today, but actually thinking outside the box, right? So really, batteries are not these metal little things that store electricity. It's really about storing energy in all kinds of creative ways. For example, you produce a lot of solar energy during the day, but then you want to have uh, electricity at night. So... Who says that we need to use conventional batteries, right? Why not just heat up certain materials like salts and capture energy in the form of heat that we can then release uh, during the night to create a baseline uh, power? That's something that scientists are working on which is actually not too far off uh, from becoming a mainstream reality. But my favorite example is one that is actually not a new one. Back in Europe the Swiss have an ingenious idea. They buy electricity from Germans during the night when it's cheap, and they pump up water up the mountains. And then during the day, they release this water. It streams down the mountainside and they generate electricity and sell it back to the Germans at double or three times the price. I think that's an ingenious battery. How do
1: the Germans feel about this
0: stuff? Oh, I think the Germans are quite happy because it allows them to have a base load power without building more uh, power stations. So I think it's a pretty good win-win and it's uh, a creative use of the landscape to actually creating a battery of a very different kind.
1: And I think this idea of what it takes to develop a battery or to store energy and release it at the right time will be a critical question if we think about Internet of Things, if we think about connected devices. A lot of the very interesting stories that we see in the media rely on the fact that we have already solved the battery problem, which we haven't yet. One of my favorite examples of ingenious ways to solve the battery problem is again the Swiss and I think this is the week that we're going to get to the Swiss. Well, uh, don't you love the Swiss
0: <laughs> in their ingenious um, uh, way of dealing with technology?
1: Mechanical watch engineers who have worked with um, cardiologists and uh, have developed a new way of capture, of using the mechanism that, that you have in, in mechanical watches, using them in pacemakers. Pacemakers suffer from the problem that you have once a year or once every two years. is very costly and actually quite dangerous to change the batteries in the pacemakers. Using the mechanical devices that you have in watches to actually use the heartbeat to power the battery in pacemakers and never have to change
0: it again. So yeah, they're getting rid of the battery altogether by inventing something in its stead. That's quite good
1: quite ingenious gotta love the Swiss
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well I think that's all we've got time for today see you next week for another the future this week
1: see you next week
0: if you have any ideas for you know good ingenious ridiculous or otherwise interesting and relevant stories about the future just send them to us see you next week see you next week
1: This was The Future This Week, brought to you by Sydney Business Insights and the Digital Disruption Research Group. You can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can follow us online on Twitter and on Flipboard. If you have any news you want us to discuss, please send them to sydney.edu.au.